Hi, this is Michelle Wainwright, and welcome to Creative Juicy, a podcast about the creative process, the journey to finding your voice, and tools to help creatives, aka people just like you, find inspiration, confidence, and some business savvy along the way. My career in brand and content strategy led me to collaborating with incredible creators, from photographers to directors, chefs, designers, stylists, illustrators, developers, founders, and so much more. I'm here to shine a light on the experiences of people who dare to be different, with the hopes of inspiring you to do whatever makes you feel unapologetically you. So let's get into it. This is Creative Juicy. Well, Rini, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, excited to be here. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. Uh, My name is Rini Shaw. I am an advertising creative director and an illustrator based in Brooklyn. I've been in the industry for the past 17 years or so, um, and I've been on the agency side, I've been freelance, and I'm currently an in-house creative director at Oatly. So there are so many things I want to get into. Your work as an illustrator, to your time at Oatly now, and also the books you've illustrated and published. But first, I would love to know, how did you get your start in this career? Yeah, um, I really started with the summer internship right out of college. I went to UC San Diego for media art, which was a lot of media theory. It wasn't really a substantial design degree, um, so I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And then I got into this minority advertising program, and I landed at Wyden and Kennedy in Portland, which was just kind of an amazing first gig to land. Um, And I had never really thought about advertising at all, especially as a career path. I never really thought about where commercials came from. But I think landing at Wyden, it was like, oh, it can be beautiful and it can be artful and it could be the center of cultural conversation, even um, if it's done right. And so I was just like hooked right away. Amazing. How did you how did you land that? Was it applying via a job listing or? Yeah, it was a it was a internship program at the time that was placing um, if you were from a minority background, it would place you in ad agencies around L.A. Um, But I had grown up in L.A. and I didn't necessarily want to go back. And they had said, oh, there's like, you know, a few positions in Portland, Oregon, which at the time it meant nothing to me. And the name Wyden meant nothing. I was just like, all right, I don't want to be in LA. Let me apply to this one. Um, And that's how I I landed there. (laughs) Amazing. Um, And then what did your career look like kind of from there, if you don't mind quickly, just walking us through your trajectory to today? Yeah, I mean, in the internship, I was, you know, in the design studio and I was doing a little bit of video editing. And after I left Portland, I ended up in San Francisco and I really just started at the bottom. I was at junior designer at a post-production house. Um, Right when the economy crashed, I decided to go freelance and just call myself an art director and see if it would work. And it sort of did, but it was definitely, you know, a struggle um, for a couple of years and then just gradually went full time and then I would go freelance again. And I've kind of just kept going Um, at the same time, doing a lot of work outside of advertising um, for illustration and short films and 
animation and just kind of, you know, build my voice as an artist outside of advertising. Is this career path one that your family was on board for? No. <laughs> um, I I grew up here. I was born here, but my parents were born in India. And I think, you know, the idea of something like math or science-based just felt a lot more stable to them. And something creative, I think, was just this huge risk. Um, so even until a couple of years ago, they were still on my case to go back to school and get my MBA Oh, really? Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, they're supportive now. I think they they finally get it and they, they trust that I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to, you know, end up moving back home or, you know, I'm not that like struggling artist that I think they were scared of. Well, something I was really impressed with just from, you know, reading your bio and doing research on you is how you balance or move from working from in-house at a brand to like freelance gigs and working on your own projects. I wanted to ask you as a creative, what is your perspective on working for a brand whose visual identity perhaps doesn't match your own aesthetic or style? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're working at an agency or if you're freelance, you don't really get a choice on which brand you're typically working on. And I think that we all kind of have to adapt. Like I'm, I'm sure every creative I know has worked on a Google project and I don't know that I necessarily like love the brand identity, although I, I think it shifts. Um, but I think that I was really lucky with this Oatly job that the brand identity is actually something I really love and it it's illustration based, which is great because I'm also an illustrator. And so the style of Oatly is actually quite similar to my own personal style. And so that definitely was a huge um, factor in me going in house. So I think you know, if you're working agency side, it's probably hard to completely align with brand identities. But if you're thinking about going in-house, it would probably be better if you liked uh, where the brand visual identity was. Just from getting like personal pleasure from the experience or? Yeah, I mean, you're going to work with it day in and day out, you know, maybe possibly for years, depending on how long you stay. And if it's something that feels really boring or stiff or you literally just hate it, um, it's probably not a good fit. Yeah, yeah, understood. Do you also find that when you are in situations where you're working with a brand that doesn't match your own style, do you find that those situations help you grow? Or do you feel neutral? And you know, it's just the same amount of growth you would experience even for a brand that you enjoy? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, th I think it's always a good challenge to kind of stretch, uh, you know, what what you can do visually and how you can even make it your own while still staying within the brand guidelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Oatly as a brand is one that really stands out to me. I mean, I don't know if they're still running, but I just remember the the subway campaign in New York that was like all over the subways and the little billboards when you enter the subways. But I would love to learn more about what that creative process looks like behind the scenes at Oatly. Yeah. Um, so the Oatly creative team in North America is actually pretty new. There's only four creatives, which is a little bit crazy. Um, we've got two writers, a design director, and I'm one of the creative directors. Um, before 
2017 or 2018, I would say, um, everything came from Sweden, like all the creative, because Oatly is based in Sweden. And so the last couple of years, and I've been there a year and a half now, has really been trying, uh, us trying to build that department, you know, kind of find our footing and, you know, really, like, really address the U.S. market in a way that maybe Sweden can't. Um, you know, we're a huge market, huge growth potential for oat milk. It's, you know, it's growing really quickly. And so it's been definitely a ride for the last year and a half of watching our team grow and, you know, kind of adapting a brand that's been so Swedish based uh, to a U.S. market. I've always been fascinated with Scandinavian countries and culture. And I remember seeing a friend visiting Copenhagen, I believe, and, you know, posting her iced coffee and it had oat milk in it. And I just remember always seeing oat milk referred to with the people I follow who live there. And then I feel like the second it came to the U.S., I was, it was just like, boom, like oat milk everywhere. And now I exclusively only have oat milk in my coffees. So um, I can only imagine that kind of like energy it brings to the business. Yeah, I mean, I when I first got to Brooklyn, I was freelance and there was definitely that like oat milk shortage of 2018, I remember, where you just couldn't find it. Coffee shops would post a sign, you know, saying that they were out. So yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey uh, for the brand in the U.S. Have there been any brands that come up that you feel are kind of trying to play off of Oatly's style of things? I, I definitely think that like that irreverent tone of voice, um, I've, I definitely have seen other brands. I don't know if they've necessarily been plant-based milk, but other brands where I look at it, I'm like, they maybe, maybe referenced us in a mood board or, you know, something like that. You can kind of just tell. Do you have any advice for creative directors working in-house at a brand? I think kind of like what we talked about before, like if you love the brand, that definitely helps. Um, and I also think if you're aligned with the mission of the brand, which something I never really thought about when I was agency side or freelance, like, you know, you kind of just take whatever project comes your way and you're, you're usually like assigned to an account. But going in-house, um, when I was thinking about joining Oatly, what really struck me was the mission of Oatly where you know, it's, it's very much about sustainability. It's about encouraging people to be more plant-based, which is better for the planet. It's about challenging the food systems, um, you know, in the country, which are fairly broken at the moment and, you know, challenging even like the role of big dairy. Like I've learned so much about how milk gets subsidized and how kids are encouraged to drink it from a young age. And that curriculum is created by, you know, the dairy council council. So, I think, you know, just aligning with the mission of a brand and being like, that is something that I can, you know, help with and I can think about every day. And it's something that I'm passionate about. I think that's super important. Yeah, makes sense. So your work as an illustrator, your work has been featured in some incredible publications. Can you share a little bit about how you got your work featured there? How did you kind of uptick your illustrative work on the side? Yeah, I mean, a big turning point was when I got an illustration agent, which happened in 2014. Um, I had been reaching out to illustration reps for years and just wasn't really hearing back, um, just kind of cold emailing places. And then I connected with Brandon Johnson, which um, they're my current reps, and it was just an instant click of, 
they had a small roster, which I really appreciated because it wasn't like 50 artists that they were trying to service at once. It was a very small roster where I could see how my work fit in with the roster, but it didn't overlap too much. Um, and so I definitely started, you know, just building clients and, you know, bigger projects as soon as I signed with them. And then I mostly have been doing brand work for the last couple of years. And then in the last year, I really wanted to make the shift more towards editorial. Um, like my huge goal was to get into the New York Times. And um, I was super excited to have a big piece um, this past spring um, for an article having to do with recycling. Um, and it made the front page, which was like so, so exciting. Yeah, um, it definitely felt like something I'd been working towards for a long time. And, um, you know, I had been wanting to do more editorial work, but I didn't have a lot of it in my portfolio. Um, and so in 2020, right before the pandemic, I had started doing editorial illustrations for this website called Inside Hook, which is sort of, it's almost like a GQ um, online website for men that has like fashion and, you know, all kinds of different categories. And so I basically became the illustrator for the sex and dating section, which was definitely pretty interesting because dating at the beginning of the pandemic was pretty wild. And so the assignments were just really entertaining and, you know, hilarious to even think about. And so I really started building this body of editorial work through that, which made it easier for me to approach art directors at different places and then to also be approached. Um, but I really love what I really love about editorial illustration is, you know, taking this sometimes silly, sometimes very heavy concept and then distilling it down into one image that, you know, just instantly reads. So it's it's definitely been fun to dive more into it. Yeah. Well, congrats on that New York Times piece. You'll have to send me the link so that I can include it in the show notes. Sure. Um, yeah. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but is it that your rep will send you like, hey, the New York Times just reached out. They want a piece for this article. Like, here's a creative brief created by them. Or like, how does that process work? And I'm sure it varies. But if you don't mind explaining just a little bit. It works both ways. Sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, an agency reached out and they're interested in you for this particular project. And, you know, here's the brief. And then sometimes I get direct emails from art directors at agencies or at publications and saying, hey, are you available for this? And then I will loop in my agent to kind of deal with all the account sides of things. So it really works both ways. I really want to talk about the books you've worked on, illustrated, published, been the author of. I believe your first was the Made Up Words Project, but please correct me. Yeah, um, can, can you share more about that? Yeah, so the project started as a side project. I was working at an agency and I remember my project had just died and I was kind of bored and just had a lot of free time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was binging The West Wing for the first time. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, I love um, The West Wing. I love The West Wing. Um, and there was some episode where Rob Lowe's character walks in and he says a word and no one knows what he's talking about. And it occurred to me that that must happen to people all the time where they think something's a real word and then they realize like their mother made it up and no one else has ever heard that word. Um, and so I started this website called The Made Up Words Project where 
I would have people send me a word that they could use with friends or family. Um, give me the definition, give me the pronunciation. And then also if there's any cool backstory to how the word originated. And so I would draw them. Um, and the idea was like, you know, the drawing should be simple. I should be able to do it in like 25 minutes. And so I initially had sent the email out to just friends and coworkers. So I launched the website, I remember on a Monday with 25 words, and then it just instantly went viral where it was like front page of Huffington Post and Mashable and it had a BuzzFeed list and I was getting submissions from all over, which is like, it was, it just was a little bonkers how quickly it happened. And literally Tuesday, which was like 24 hours after I had launched it, I got an email from a lit agent that was like, hey, have you ever thought about turning this into a book? And I was like, well, it's only been like a day, but <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, so, so yeah, that was the launch of how that eventually turned into a book. And so for the book, we turned it into a hundred different words, all sourced from the internet. Um, and that came out in uh, 2015. How incredible. That must have been such a whirlwind. It was wild. It was such a wild week. Yeah. I feel like everyone tries to recreate that, but then it's so like impossible to. Did some writer or editor come across, they must have come across it online through like your email, friends and family. I don't know. I wonder how that got started. Yeah, I'm not sure because uh, my lit agent, who I'm still with, she had seen a Flavor Wire article about it. And so it's like, I'm not, yeah, it's one of those things where like, you know, especially in advertising, we're always trying to get things to go viral. Um, and so when something just does on its own, it's always a little bit of a mystery, um, but it's also a little bit magical too. And I, I sort of think the trick of it was that I wasn't trying to go viral. I was just trying to make a thing that, I found amusing, um, you know, and it just kind of resonated with other people as well. That's so cool. I love hearing the inspiration behind, you know, the West Wing episode also. Can you share more about um, how your book journey progressed following the Made Up Words project? Yeah. So after the Made Up Words project, I illustrated a book that came out last year. It's um, called Off Bedtime Fantasy, um, and it's about... Um, the day the internet died and it basically follows this family it's a little bit hard to explain it, it's sort of written in this like biblical tone but like what if the internet went away and the family has to kind of finally start paying attention to each other instead of looking at their phones and they sort of discover like the outdoors and you know just all these things that they had lost along the way because they were just so tuned into the internet so that came out last spring. Um, it's written by Chris Collin, who's like an amazing, funny writer. And I ended up getting that project through my lit agent, um, who mm -hmm. is Monica Verma. She's amazing. And she connected me to Chris, who had written this manuscript, didn't have an illustrator attached to it, and like wasn't sure what to do with just the, you know, just the manuscript itself. And so we put together um, I did some sample illustrations and we paired it with his manuscript and we sent that off to publishers and, you know, was just waiting to see if anyone be, would be interested in publishing it. So that's, that's how that one came about. Um, and then the one that is going to come out next spring, I'm 
co-writing it with my friend David Roth, who's a comedian and a copywriter based in New York. And I'm also illustrating it. And it's going to be published by Chronicle Books um, next spring, Amazing. which super excited about yeah they were like my dream publisher uh like forever so I'm super excited to be working with them what does that publishing deal relationship look like I know people can go the self-publishing route which obviously has a ton of obstacles in its own right but then also when you do have a publisher you obviously have certain guardrails and boundaries and restrictions as well can you just share a little bit more about you know, do they build the timeline and the release date and then build some sort of like press push? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, they definitely do that. And I will say it's a very long process, at least for this book, which David and I has sold it in in 2020. So it's going to be like a three year timeline. It's the opposite of advertising where it just kind of keeps going. Um, but basically, Kind of the same thing what we did with Off was uh, David and I put together this packet. It's almost like a director's treatment, um, but, you know, it has a summary of what the book is, sample illustration, sample writing, and then we shopped it out to publishers. Chronicle came back, and then the next step is, like, to finalize the manuscript, which takes quite a while. Mm -hmm. And the publishers, I think, at least the ones I've worked with, are have been really great about, you know not changing things too much. Like most of the changes we had for this for this book was just making sure things made sense for the audience because we're speaking to kids. Um, like would a kid understand this joke exercise? You know, are we going through the right logical steps? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so once we finalized that, I was then able to start on artwork and laying it all out and all of that. And we've have finally reached the end of that process <laughs> after many, many years. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically now we're kind of just waiting for release. Like, I think there will be a PR push, um, which typically starts like four to six months before the book comes out. And then hopefully, ideally, we'll have some kind of book tour um, where we can go in person and, you know, visit different bookstores and hopefully maybe teach some kids um, in person. When I had the book tour for off, it was still definitely pandemic-y. So it was all online, which was a little, little bit of a bummer because it's, you know, definitely hard to do that all over Zoom. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that this one will be in person. Also, how ironic for just the the concept of off to have it all on the internet. <laughs> that definitely came up that like the fact that, you know, we could even have a book tour was based on the internet. The fact that we all had been kept sane through the pandemic was because of the internet. Like, yeah, there was definitely a lot of conversation coming up. That's an interesting thought starter. So does the publisher sign on just with that initial pitch or do they need to see the manuscript to be like, okay, officially, yes? I think it depends. I think if, it might be different if you were publishing like a novel. And actually the New York Times came out with a really great article about this whole process two weeks ago. Um, oh. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll find the link. Um, for For this category, which... So I've, you know, this is a kid's book. The other two books that I've worked on, I would kind of categorize them in like the gift book category, um, but they don't necessarily need to see the 
full manuscript, but they do need mm -hmm. to see quite a good sample of it. I see. Okay. So, you know, you have your gig at Oatly, illustrations on the side, book. What do you do or what do you do? I don't know how you have time, but do you have time for like other creative outlets beyond these things? And also like, what is the importance of maintaining personal side projects for you? Yeah, I mean, balancing all those three have definitely been a challenge. It was a lot easier when I was freelance because I, you know, could kind of hop in and out and then focus on these side projects a little bit more. It's definitely harder, I would say. And I, I think that I've just come to learn that it's okay to take breaks. Like I don't have to be productive all the time in every single area. Like sometimes it's okay to just be doing my full-time job and that's it. But I am a huge believer in side projects. Like I think it's really helped me evolve as a creative. Um, you know, when I think about the agency model, I feel like you're really put into a box. Like, you know, I was very much put into an art director box where I'm paired up with a copywriter and, you know, we sort of maintain these roles. But like, you know, you could be an art director that is really good at video editing, but you're not going to be able to do that at your job. Like it's just not really set up that way. And so I, I really believe that side projects help people or it's really helped me at least like just figure out like, what do I like doing? What am I good at? What is my voice? Which I think is like a very important thing to figure out. Um, I think like through my illustration, I've figured out that there's sort of a sense of whimsy that comes out in my work that I'm not necessarily like consciously thinking about. Um, but, you know, it kind of makes me lean more towards comedy. And uh, one of my sort of side projects in the past was I started writing for a sketch comedy group in San Francisco. And I started that by taking some classes that they were offering. And I remember just being terrified to even take the class because I hadn't written anything in so long. And then I ended up loving it. Like while I was in the class, I would, you know, wake up at midnight and write notes on my phone of just stuff I thought was funny. And, you know, I just couldn't wait to start writing, which was just like this whole new part of my brain that I hadn't been using at all. And it has totally translated to my full-time work. Um, like in the past gigs, I've brought that writing skill in and even just small things like giving a speech at my brother's wedding. It's like, I'm, I now have permission to try to be funny because I, you know, I feel a little bit more confident in it. And so I just think that if I hadn't been trying all these different things outside of my job, you know, it, it might've just limited what I thought I was capable of or what I was comfortable with. I also love that it's called sketch comedy. <laughs> <laughs> because of your illustration. Yeah. But I was going to I was going to ask about your the role humor plays in your work. And I feel like that definitely comes through with Oatly's brand voice as well. That must be a nice kind of thread even though it manifests differently across different projects. Definitely. Yeah, I I often think that what we do at Oatly is very smart dumb. Like, you know, we have like a smart reason for what we're saying but we do it in such a dumb way which I really appreciate like we don't take ourselves too we don't take ourselves too seriously which I really like um and I'd love quickly just to hop back to one of the first things you said was that you said you would just decide to call yourself an art director which I love that because it's just <laughs> bold and I feel like so many people are afraid to do things like that is that something you would recommend to 
you know, someone starting out in their career with a little bit of, you know, experience under their belt to get freelance projects or would you do it again? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would absolutely do it again. I'm a big believer in faking it until you make it. And, you know, I think a lot of people go the ad school route, you know, and, you know, they kind of, they graduate and they call themselves an art director after that. Like I, at the time, couldn't afford to go to grad school. And so, you know, the only way was either to just kind of work my way up and get promoted into it, or just to like take that leap and just see if it worked. And I, I think if people feel comfortable and confident in the skills, like a lot of these titles are kind of bullshit. Like I think, you know, if you feel like you can do it, then like go for it and just see what happens. Okay. Well, Renee, I have five final questions and I ask everyone the same. We may have touched on these topics, but I will ask them anyway. So question number one is what drives you to create? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I think that I've just always been creating. Like even as a little kid, I was sort of always doodling in the margins. But I think as I as I get older, I think about how, you know, I work in a very white male dominated industry and I, I really think that it's time for new and different voices. And I think, you know, as a brown woman, my voice is different and valuable and should be heard. And I think that has been driving me a little bit more lately. Mm. I don't know what it was, but that group that placed you, are they still around? Who, what was their name? I'm like totally blanking on the name, but I don't, don't think worry. they exist anymore. Yeah. yeah, Cause that's a really, really awesome initiative that they have. Yeah, definitely. But there's, there's quite a few now, I think like ad color, I think is really great. Um, I think there are more, this was like, you know, I'm dating myself, but almost 20 years ago. So it's, it's definitely been a while. Mm -hmm. Question number two, this one is fill in the blank, but feeling inspired feels like. I think it feels like hot gossip. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. Because when you're inspired and you have a great idea, I just like, can't wait to make it and share it. I love that answer. I think that might be my, this is going to be, I think the 24th episode. And that is my favorite answer. (laughs) No offense to anyone else. Question number three, where do you go to get your creative juices flowing? Mm. I feel like this is sort of a boring answer, but I really love Pinterest. Like I feel like anytime I'm sort of blocked and I'm just totally blank canvas, don't really know what I'm looking for, but sort of have, you know, maybe a slight inkling I feel like there's just so much cool stuff and it's, I, I think I've been on Pinterest since it launched um, and it's, I've like got a billion boards on it. Like it's a little bit of a mess, but I, yeah, I definitely use it all the time, especially when I'm just like looking for, you know, the direction that feels right for whatever project I'm on. Not a bad answer. I also love Pinterest. I use my Instagram saves as Pinterest, like with specific boards, titles of things. Yeah. But I guess now I feel like it's just giving me just the same thing that I like and I like want to find new things, but. I know I've had that problem too. I feel like whatever they've done with the algorithm, it's like, and you know, I'll search, you know, for like haircuts and then for the next three weeks, it's just haircuts. It's like, no, I just needed like that one time. Yeah. Question number four. 
If you could tell your younger self one thing or one piece of advice, what would you say? I would say a leap and the net will appear. And then finally, is there anything that you are looking forward to today? Anything coming up that's keeping you feeling motivated and inspired? Yeah, I actually have a couple projects that have been long labors of love uh, launching. One is, well, the book, the joke book is coming out next spring, which I'm so excited about it finally coming out. And two, at the end of the month, um, I've been working on this web series for Oatly uh, called Will It Swap, which is a cooking show. And it's super fun and weird and dumb and smart and all those things. So I'm really excited for that to finally be out in the world. Amazing. Yeah. And I saw on your Instagram a project with uh, Sky Pie and is it High Snob is coming out soon? Um, With High Beast. Hype beast type. I always get those two confused. Yeah, that's actually launching on Monday. So stay tuned for that too. <laughs> well, Renee, thank you so much. Um, where can people keep up with you, follow your work? How can they stay up to date? Yeah, um, my Instagram is just Rini Shaw and my website is renishaw.com. Awesome. Well, Rini, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creative Juicy. If you like what you heard, it would mean so much if you can take a minute to rate and review the show. Be sure to hit subscribe to stay updated on new episodes and follow me at Mish, M-I-C-H, underscore Wainwright on Instagram for more podcast updates. You can also find show notes and a transcript for today's episode at creativejuicypodcast.com. Hope you have a good one. Bye.